Good morning to you all. Uh, so right said, I've got plenty of time. So if you've got your Sunday rose yeah, in the oven, then yeah, forget about it. <laughs> this morning, we're going to continue our series on the book of Philippians. We've been looking um, at this book over the past few weeks or so. And this morning, we'll be continuing that. And we'll be reading some verses from chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. So Philippians 2, 12 to 18, I'll be reading them. If you haven't got a Bible, they'll be projected on the screen. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the days of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Wow. A wonderful passage. But doesn't it remind you of a certain friend here? As I was reading through Philippians again and again for the past couple of weeks or so, it just reminds me of one friend uh, who keeps encouraging everyone, uh, regardless of what sort of uh, situation he is at. Doesn't Paul sound Raj a bit in here? I mean, it just reminded me of Raj. Rejoice. Well done. Encouraging. Yeah, you're doing great. And I'm thinking, I'm not. But you're doing great. Carry on. Do it. And I, it just reminded me of Raj, of how he's encouraging others. Um, I mean, he's, he'll beat the Apostle Paul in saying rejoice and joy and encouraging others. And rightly so. But doesn't it remind you of Raj, really? And it's just great that what he does is rooted in the Bible. It's not just some wishy-washy thing. Of, oh, yeah, you're doing well. But you clearly know you're not. Uh, and it's not just giving you some vibes or some positive energy. It's what's rooted in the Bible. It's by the Spirit of God. It's encouraging you, knowing that the Spirit of God will come and help you, and that encouragement is going to get you out of wherever you are, or even help you go further. Um, the book of Philippians is the book where a majority of verses that we memorize come from. So a lot of the verses that we've memorized come from this book, from this letter. And I think the most uh, familiar one or the most uh, famous one is I can do all things through a verse taken out of context <laughs> yes but that yeah the actual verse uh, yeah but quite a lot of verses so you can see that it's really significant just like the whole of the Bible is but a lot of the verses we memorize or we usually quote to one another sometimes out of context but that's fine are from this letter um, but sometimes you wonder whether Paul feels a bit tired of saying, Rejoice! Come on! You're doing well! Great! It feels like he's, he's a parent of a four-year-old who keeps messing up and then Paul has to keep saying, Oh, I've got to show grace. I've got to show grace. I've got to encourage them. But he doesn't. He doesn't tire of it because the sort of joy he's talking about is not what we normally know in the world. And also, knowing his circumstances and where he wrote the letter from, Joy and rejoice are probably the two words he wouldn't be using. He was writing it from a prison. He was in a cell, probably really dark, 
I was going to say cold, but it wasn't in England, so it couldn't have been cold, um, and not wet either. But it was a place where you wouldn't really feel the joy. You wouldn't really feel that you want to jump up and down and say, Rejoice! It's not a place where you'd feel like singing. It's not a place where you'd feel like encouraging the person next to you, because you would need encouraging yourself anyway. But he's writing it from there. So all the more reasons that what he's talking about is not what we normally know in the world. The joy he's talking about is completely different. And the way he's talking to Philippians here, again, I use the analogy of kids, uh, but uh, it's like, you know, when you tell your children, don't do this, and two minutes later they do it. And it's like the kids, when you're around, they're well behaved, well, some of the time. They try their best to really do things to to comply with some of your expectations, to really make sure that they're doing things in a way where you always offer encouragement and say, well done. You're not around for 10 seconds, they all mess up. They pinch food from each other's plates, they put their finger in their nose, and then they turn around, and they're, they're doing all sorts of things that you didn't ask them. And it's not because, as parents, you didn't really put efforts in there to teach them good manners. It's because they're just kids. It's because that's the nature. You can't put a CCTV around and always try and correct them, but trust me, they'll find a blind spot there and they'll, they'll do what they want to do when you're not around and they pretend that everything's fine. The Apostle Paul could have done that as well, but what he's saying is, I was around, you were doing really well, I'm not around, continue, carry on, do what you're doing so well and carry on, go with it. He's talking about himself being a drink offering. He's not talking about buying a round of drink in your normal watering hole. What he's talking about is that he is ready to be a sacrifice for them. He's not talking about himself being the sacrifice, just like when we talk about carrying the cross. We're not talking about carrying the ultimate sacrifice or the cross. The Apostle Paul is giving that analogy as well. He's saying that, carry on. Carry on the way you are. I'm proud of you. It's brilliant. I'm looking at you and it's just great. Carry on so that even at the end, if I'm not around anymore, I know that what I did, the foundations I put in there, all the teachings I brought, all the one-anothering that was there, all the time I invested in you, all the energy I gave in, everything that I sacrificed for you, it wouldn't be in vain. And that reminded me of um, the verse in Psalms, I think it's 127, where it's again one of the things that we probably memorized all that. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workers work in vain. And then I remember we were talking about it, I don't know in what context, in one of the elders' meetings, and Raj said, well, if God is in the house, then all the more reasons to work even harder. Isn't that great? I mean, that was supposed to be encouragement, but working hard is usually not encouraging. But isn't that great to look at it, that, yeah, if God's not there, of course, it doesn't mean anything. But if he's there, then great, all the more reasons for us to carry on, regardless of the season out there. Whether it's snow out there and it's supposed to be the new year soon, and I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that the new year and snow and cold weather, still, I mean, I've been living here for 16 years and I, can, I can't still work that out. I'm from a culture where we uh, celebrate the new year on the first day of spring. So when you say new year, everything out there is actually new. So snow was new today. <laughs> So Paul is saying, rejoice in all things. Jesus had joy even to the point where he was going to go to the cross. We read that in Hebrews. that It says, because of the joy that was set before him, 
they decided to carry on. Now imagine Jesus carrying a cross, he's being beaten, he's really embarrassed and ashamed, he's walking towards the place where he's going to get crucified. He's being executed, not in a very nice way. And he's seeing the salvation and the fruit of his work, what is, what's about to happen. And he looks at that and decides, this is well worth it. I'm going to go through with it. I know this is hard. I know I don't deserve any of it. I know I didn't even have to be here. But I'm going to go ahead with it. Because I can see the joy that it will bring to the Father. For the joy set before him. Some of us are in difficult circumstances at times, but we lose our joy. But some others lose our joy at times when we shouldn't really. Your cup of tea gets cold. You lose your joy. Come on, Jesus was being crucified. He was walking to a place where he knew he was going to get killed in a horrifying way. But yet he carried on with it. And the shame that it brought on him, the shame of walking to the cross. Now, you talk about joy and shame, Again, culturally, at Jesus' time, it was different. Now, with joy, we may understand a bit, because some of our Eritreans and Middle Eastern friends have talked to us about joy. We've been to some of their weddings. We know what joy is all about. We know that it's loud and there's lots of dancing. But with shame, again, at Jesus' time, when we talk about shame, we may not necessarily understand it the same way. Andy McCulloch, in his book, Global Humility, which I would highly recommend, he says that if atonement was just about guilt and righteousness, then Jesus could have been killed and he would have, been, uh, he would have died in private, behind closed doors. And that was it. The price was paid and it was, the guilt was wiped away. But it wasn't about guilt. It was about shame. And that's why shame was public. That's why it couldn't be done behind closed doors. And that's one of the points where quite a lot of people from a similar culture to Jesus cannot understand. Because they say, how come God has been shamed? I cannot follow a God who's been ashamed. I can't follow a God who was publicly humiliated. But that's the fact and reality of our God. He was so willing that he came. He sent his own son to this earth, and that's what we're celebrating. So next week, as you put your jumpers on, don't just think about, oh, this is a time of year we've been celebrating, and I don't really know what it's all about. It's about that baby Jesus who came down. And the shame wasn't just at the cross. Jesus came down, he had to be dependent on others. Imagine Joseph, Mary's husband, picking Jesus up, blowing raspberries on his belly, tickling him, and then Jesus needing his nappy changing. It's the Son of God. But yet, he humbled himself and came down. And the shame of him being crucified was so great that a lot of people from that culture are not willing to follow him. They've made up stories about him not being crucified because one of the prophets of God can't be crucified. He can't be publicly shamed. They've made up stories about him not really being crucified, being taken up to heaven and somebody else, a bad guy, being shamed publicly. But the Bible is very open about this. The Bible is really open about people who've messed up and have brought shame on themselves and their own community. And the Bible is very open about the shame of you and I, our guilt and our sin that was brought on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there's only one holy person in there who didn't really deserve all this shame. So next time you jump the queue, 
Next time your card is declined at the checkout, don't think this is the same feeling that Jesus had. No, that's guilt and that's a bit of embarrassment. Shame is totally different. But yet Paul says, look at Jesus and the shame that was brought on him and rejoice. Normally you wouldn't rejoice in other people's misfortune. But with Jesus, because we know the end of it, we know what's happening at the end. We know that, yes, he, he took all the shame of the world on him. He cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? He could feel that there was a wall between him and the Father. He could feel the shame of the sin of the world on him. But yet we know that there was victory at the end. We know that even that guilt and shame and sin couldn't hold him in the grave. We know that he rose again on the third day and he came and the first thing he said to his disciples, have you got some fish? Can you, can you feed me? I'm, I'm hungry a bit. Yeah. What's that you're barbecuing there? Fish, yeah, I'll have some of that please. And then he walks into a room of disciples that are really scared and he tells them, peace on you. I mean, come on, what's happened to you? Are you the same person? Don't you know we're scared? Jesus knew so well his disciples were scared and they needed the peace that passes all understandings, the peace that comes from above. And the Apostle Paul had experienced it. A Pharisee who went and persecuted the people who were following this person, who was bringing shame on Jews, saying he was the Son of God, yet he was killed in a way that was so shameful that nobody wanted to follow him. So he went after his followers to persecute them and say, don't bring shame on us. You're a Jew, you cannot follow this person. You know how bad it is. What you do affects the whole community. And then suddenly he has a moment, a revelation. God comes and speaks to him directly. And his heart's changed. And now he sees it in a different light. Now my friends, if you're here and if you think, oh, this Jesus story, I mean, it's not really relevant to me. Yeah, I'd like to come to church now and again. Yeah, I'd like to maybe know a bit about him. But it doesn't really concern me. It does. Because it's your decision about him, who he is today, that will really determine your eternity. It's your decision and how you think about him today that will determine where you will be once your time on this earth is done. Despite all of this, Jesus saw the joy. The Apostle Paul has heard about Jesus' crucifixion. He knows how terrible it was. Yes, he's saying, rejoice! He's in a similar situation, not to that extent, but he's in prison because he believed in that very same person. He's in chains. He's not sat behind a desk with a few books on theology around him, with maybe a laptop and making notes as he goes along or receiving from the Spirit, typing them all up and emailing them over. It's not just a theology to be looked at. It's how you live your lives. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, this is the God we follow. Rejoice in that. Firstly, because Jesus did it, it means you don't have to do it. You don't have to go through with it. And secondly, because we know the end story, you can rejoice now rather than waiting for the time when he comes back. The light of the world has put his light in you and I today. So we don't have to wait for his return. We can rejoice now. It's guaranteed. One of our uh, friends uh, passed away and uh, his family asked us to pray for him recently. Uh, pray for him to be with God, to be 
in heaven, to be in paradise. And I thought to myself, well, how do you respond to that in that sort of situation? These are people who are mourning and they're asking you for prayer, firstly because they know you're a Christian and their experience tells them that, and they verbalize this, that your God hears you. I mean, what better witness really than that to come and know Jesus, knowing that he hears us. So they know that Jesus hears us, but how do you respond to those who are mourning? And I was thinking to myself, when I die, I don't need prayers of anyone. I mean, I'd appreciate prayers now for healing, appreciate prayers for grace and patience when it comes to making decisions and a lot of other things. But when I'm gone, I don't need your prayers, thank you very much, because I know where I'm going. I don't have to ask you for prayers for when I'm gone, because I know it's guaranteed. It's the one thing that's guaranteed when we're gone. If you believe in Him, you're going to spend eternity with Him. You don't have to worry about asking others or your family going to others, asking them, will you pray for him to be with Jesus? And that's why one of our values is we rejoice. We rejoice. Not because we have a God who was shamed publicly. Of course, that's part of it. But because we know the end of it. We know where it's gone. We know the whole story. We're in a very fortunate situation to really know the whole story. Not the ins and outs of it and every detail. But God has given us a big picture of who He is, who we are in that light. Terry Vega said that in one of his preaches I was listening to recently, again on Philippians, that in the Old Testament, God chose a nation. So, he chose a nation, brought them out. You were part of that nation, brilliant, great. It was a collective thing. In the New Testament, it's an individual response that will make you part of a bigger nation. So, here today, just because your children are growing in a Christian family, doesn't mean that they're going to end up walking with God. My hope and prayer is that they would, because they're seeing God's work in your life, and what you put in there, the foundations, would give them the foundations for their lives for the days to come. But that's not necessarily the case. They will need to make a response, an individual response. And then based on that, they will be able to be part of a nation, part of a family, part of a wonderful thing that God is doing. So rejoice because you have a choice to make. Rejoice because you can say yes to Jesus, be part of this wonderful family, and get to spend eternity with Him. We've had a lot of prophetic words over the past year or so in particular, and recently as well, about enlarging the tent, about spring is here. I mean, you look outside and you don't believe me, but you don't have to look with your, own, with your physical eyes. You can sense in your spirit that spirit, spring is here. You can sense that, yes, it's time for us to really enlarge the tent. God says rejoice in that. It's time for us rejoice. And I love the fact that it's we rejoice because it's about all of us doing it together. We all have a part to play. Now, when it comes to tents, I mean, I'm horrified. It was just because it took me around 10 years to really come to conclusion that, yes, you can be a Christian and you can not like camping, particularly when it comes to Christian conferences. 10 years or so, so I'm horrified at the thought of even God taught, using the analogy of tent. Uh, but it's what God has said, and we're going to go with it. 
But God is telling me personally, and he's telling you, rejoice as you're enlarging the tent. As I'm thinking, oh, we're going to get the poles out, and there's a wind that comes. It reminds me of the time at North, a new day, and other times where you suddenly put something together and the wind comes and blows it all over. Or you're putting something down, a peg down, and then one of the kids comes and takes it out because it's fun. But God is saying, even in the midst of that, you may not necessarily enjoy it. It may not necessarily be your cup of tea. Rejoice. Don't be grumbling. Now I recognize I'm in a church, and yeah, a lot of people in church usually grumble. But God is saying, don't grumble. Do it like you know the end product, like you can see it. Even if you don't get to see it in your own lifetime here on earth, you're part of a big thing. Do it while you rejoice. Do it with joy. As you're getting the tent, as you're opening it up, as you're doing the work, as you're digging the ground, as you're digging ditches, rejoice. Yeah, it may not look like anything at the moment, but we're work in progress and God is in it. And as Raj reminded us, all the more reasons to really rejoice, knowing that whatever we're doing, God's blessing is on it, and it's going to get there. A lot of missionaries, a lot of great people, some really unsung heroes, have, done, have spent many, many years in parts of the world where the gospel has not really been preached. They spent many, many years, some really around 50 years or so, in places where there were not even one Christian, and they didn't see anyone coming to Christ during their lifetime. Does that mean their work was in vain? No. Look at a place like China. People went there when there was no Christian there. They went and lived there at a time where the country wasn't so open. It was difficult. And many of them didn't probably see anyone coming to Christ. Maybe one or two here and there. But now one of the largest and fastest growing churches in the world is in China. Now try and convince me that what they did wasn't part of God's work. They were sowing the seeds. God is looking for obedience in your heart and in my heart. And the rest belongs to Him. So if we're rejoicing in obedience, knowing that God's called us to really extend the tent, and yet, yes, that means a bit of work, and yes, that means we'll have more people coming in. Some people that you may not necessarily get on with. But that's the church for you, hey? That's nothing new. But we need to rejoice in it. We heard about the light of the world. And a lot of the time when we hear people coming to Christ, particularly from other cultures, particularly our friends who are refugees and asylum seekers, they come not because they're theologically convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They come because they see Jesus in you. Many of them have come and said, you're different from out there. And rightly so. They've come and said, but I haven't got anything to offer, but they're treating me like... I'm worth a million pounds. But, but it doesn't add up. It doesn't work. It's because they've seen Jesus in you. It's because you've been rejoicing in what God has done in you, what He started in you, and what He continues to do. Let's continue to do that as, as God is blessing us, as He's calling us to really stretch the tent, as He's calling us to do more work, as He's calling us to prepare and put the foundations in place, to bring the infrastructure in place to do things ready for spring where we can celebrate the real New Year, in fact. Be prepared and rejoice in it. This is part of working out our salvation. And yes, rejoicing and stretching your tent and spring has costs with it. 
Yes, as we work out our salvation, there is a cost to it. As we work out how to live like Jesus, as we work out how to live like the Father wants us to, yes, there is a price to pay. There was that famous phrase that says, salvation doesn't cost you anything. What discipleship does. And part of the process of that discipleship is really getting ready for seasons, for different seasons of life with God. And it's going to cost us. I remember when we were living in Middlesbrough, there was a Tesco around the corner from our house, and there was a lovely lady in there. She was working early morning shifts, and every time I went in there, she would be smiling, she would really be welcoming and warm, and she would just be a brilliant person to welcome people. As I would be going in, there'd be conversations, even just a 10-second conversation. Hello, sunshine. Hello, love. Come on in. Yeah, and this one. So she'd just keep that conversation going, and you could sense there was something around her. You could sense that there was just a joy around her. There was something that was different. I mean, I, I never really remember her grumbling. But there was one, uh, one time when I was really encouraging her, I was doing a bit of a raj. I said, oh, well done, you're always really bright and you're always smiling and it's just great, isn't it? Because I know life isn't always like that, but it's great. And then she said, yeah, I believe that kindness doesn't cost you anything. And immediately I thought, yes, it does. Yes, there is a cost to it. Um, the most gracious and kind person in the whole world had to do something because of his loving and kind heart. And that's our God, the Father. He had to do something because of his love, because of his kindness. And I thought immediately to myself, there is a cost to it. A few weeks later, we just carried on, and I, I would normally go in, and I saw her speaking to a young man. She, just being herself, normal, really, uh, just using great terminologies as well that you would often hear in the north. All right, pet, and all that. And then this man was being a bit unpleasant. Um, it was just like really grumbling and very unpleasant. And you could see the effects of, him, uh, of it on her as well. But she didn't change. She just carried on. I was the next in the queue. So I went along. And you could see that it really affected her a bit. At that point, I was going to say, you remember you told me kindness doesn't cost you anything. Uh, you, you st you're still sticking to that? No, I didn't. But then I tried to use that opportunity to say, yes, kindness does cost you. And there is cost in what we do and the values that we decide to display in our lives. And there is a great cost to it. But you know what? The cost that you just paid of this man being a bit unpleasant and not really appreciating it, in consideration to what God did for us, it's nothing really. I mean, I put it in words that would encourage her, not, to, not this way. But I realize that even in small things in life, there is a cost. When it comes to big things like the work of God, there is greater cost in it. But you know what? It's well worth it. Just like Jesus, the cost was great, but the joy that was set before him, amazing. He saw it and he thought, I'm not going to give that up for this. I'm going to go through with it because I'm on a mission. Are we on a mission, Jubilee? Are we here just being a wonderful family, which is great, and there's nothing wrong with that? It's really patting one another on the back, saying, it's great, isn't it lovely? I love getting together with you all. I love having lunch. I love having some of the roast lambs that you do. I love having some of the Iranian food. I love just getting together, having celebrations. It's great, and it's really valuing that, and it's amazing, and it reflects the heart of God. But there's more to it. As you stretch your tent, it's not so that you can get a bigger telly in there. It's so that you have more room for people. It's so that you can have place ready for people so as they come in, 
You can put them down. You can wash their feet. You can say, sit down here. You seem a bit wounded. Let me wash that for you. Let me pray over you. Let me make you feel at home. You seem to, be, to have run off from the world. Sit down here. Take your time. This is the right place for you. Here's a cup of tea and biscuit because he'll solve all the problems in the world. That's what it is. There's cost to it. And you know what? As you do that and as we continue to serve, there'll be times where you feel like, I don't really want to be serving this person. I don't really want to be doing this. Jesus could have said the same thing. But I know that as you even think that to yourself, you will feel the conviction of the Spirit about what God has called you to. I was almost put off reading the Bible in English when I came across this verse where it said, work out. And I thought, work out? Like as in the gym? No, I'm not going to read the Bible in English. It was, and somebody explained it to me, and later on as I read the following verses, I realized that it's, it's not about that. Of course, the Apostle Paul says there is a bit of merit in physical exercise, but he suddenly realizes he's making a mistake, and he says, but spiritual exercise is better. So I'm going to go with the better. Um, if you know me, you know that as soon as I feel the extra exercise, which doesn't happen very often, I just lay down until it passes. So... Um, <laughs> As I explained, Paul didn't write this as a theologian. Paul didn't say, work out your salvation and rejoice, because I've read a few books on it. I remember my parents taught me at home, and I remember when I went to that Pharisee college, they talked about it. They never really uh, applied it in their own lives, but they wrote a lot of books about it. He didn't. He's in a situation where you wouldn't really rejoice, if you've ever been in that situation, confined to four walls, uh, particularly um, when it's injustice, when you don't really deserve to be there, when it's false charges. You know that rejoicing is probably the last thing, but a lot of Christians who were put in prison because of their faith have found that time in prison to be one of the most helpful times of their lives. Brother Yun, a Chinese Christian, um, who's written The Heavenly Man, that's his biography, and some of the books. Um, I remember reading something um, um, about his time in prison, and I think when he was in solitary, he found that time to be one of the most helpful times because he had his Bible and he had the presence of God. And that was the time that God used to really raise him up as a leader so that he can bring about a change, so that he can go around preaching the gospel fearlessly. And it's the same with the Apostle Paul. He could just lay down there thinking, oh, well, I'm going to find a good solicitor. There's a barrister uh, that somebody knows. They'll pay, uh, they'll bribe somebody, they'll get me out. No, he trusted in the sovereignty of God, but at the same time, he did what God had called him to, to lift up the church, to really make sure that the foundations are there, to make sure that they're not drifting away from their calling. It's the same with us. Apostle Paul could have said, nah, I can't really be bothered. I've just had enough. I'm going to sit down. That's just me. I'm, I've always been lazy, really. And my mom has always told me that. Uh, she sent me to get a pint of milk and I'd come back an hour later with nothing really in my hand because I'd spent the money on sweets and chocolates. I was always like this from childhood. Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm always like that, so forget them. Uh, Philippines, they'll be fine. They'll, they'll do something about it. Have you ever said that's just the way I am? If you have, I would encourage you to look at some of the people around Jesus. They could have said the same thing. In fact, they, one of them didn't say it, but he acted on it. 
If you think that that's just the way I am, then where's the sovereignty and power of God in changing you? In working out our salvation. So Jesus had a few people around him for three years. So to put it in the context of this culture, they went to the University of Theology and Applied Theology and Discipleship for three years with Jesus as their master. After the three years, they come to get Jesus and he's been telling these people that they're going to come and get me and yeah, you'll feel like orphans for a while, but don't worry, I'm not going to go anywhere. These horrible things are going to happen, but I'll come back. I won't leave you. Simon Peter has not heard any of it. The soldiers come, he draws his knife and cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. Now, that wasn't the first time he'd done that. It's not in the Bible, but I can guarantee as a zealot, he's probably done that a lot of times. He's probably attacked Romans. He's probably done that a few times. That's who he was, a rebel. He thought, yeah, you want something sorted? Get the knife out and sort it. Spending three years with Jesus, seeing all the miracles, spending time with Jesus one-to-one as well, didn't really change him that much. And Jesus had to come and sort the mess out again. Saying, oh, you, you were with me for three years and you still haven't changed, so I'm going to give up on you. You better go home. I'll find somebody else. Send your brother. He's a better lad. <laughs> no, Jesus didn't do that, but Peter still made a mess after three years of spending time with Jesus. But yet the same person we hear through the tradition and through history, it's not in the Bible, but he was so obedient to God to the point but he changed so much because of his faith. He was imprisoned. And they said, oh, you love this Jesus guy? You're going to die like him. And he said, no, 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 I'm not worthy of dying like him. Turn me upside down because I'm not worthy of dying like him on the cross. He's my Lord. Turn me upside down and let me die another way because I'm not worthy to be like him. Now, this person who drew a knife on a soldier is going to his death, knowing that it's God's will. Knowing that, yeah, maybe he could do something. He was trained in some of the camps in maybe around Galilee about how to draw a sword. But he's not going to do that because he's a changed man. Some of Jesus' disciples were simple fishermen. That's what they did. That's what their father did. And that's what their grandfather did. And that's, they thought, well, that's life. Just going to go and learn fishing from young age. And then we'll find a good girl from a good family. We'll have a good life, we'll have a few children, and that's it. I'm going to teach my sons how to fish, and that's my life. A simple life. But they didn't remain simple fishermen. Through them, we have the Gospels, we have some of the letters in the New Testament. Through them, there are churches that are still around in the Middle East, one of the most difficult parts of the world to be a Christian today. So if you think that's just the way you are, think again. Look at some of the examples here in the Bible of how God has changed lives around. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of saying, oh, but that's just me. I I don't think I can do anything about it. Great, because it's God who's going to do something about it. So as you work out your own salvation, as you work out how to live lives like Jesus, allow Him to change you a bit as well. Don't just think, oh, it's good and it's a Christian thing to do. Allow God to convict you with his spirit so that when you do it, you're doing it from your heart. I'm going to come to an end. Um, I think we'll have some time of prayer. Uh, I think as we're talking about rejoice and joy, it'd be good to pray for the joy of God to come and rest on all of us here. But particularly if you feel 
you've not really sensed that joy for a while. Or you think you've lost that joy. Remember the first time when you came to Christ? I don't know, Bill, if that was in your youth, you probably won't remember, but um, good job it wasn't. But if you remember the day you came to Christ, you know the feeling you had. You know the celebration that was in there, even if you were on your own. I remember I was a fearful 14 or 15-year-old boy in my room with just the Bible and having just read about Jesus for about three or four hours, couldn't do anything. I just wanted to shout out, but I couldn't, because the moment I did, it, it'd be my mother who'd kick me out, and then the rest of the people in the street, knowing that you've converted from Islam into Christianity, knowing that you've accepted a guy who was publicly shamed as your Lord, knowing that you're calling Jesus shameful things, knowing that you're accepting this whole thing as the truth. But some of you probably were in a situation where you could shout out. And along the, the way, and along these years, you've probably lost a bit of that. Let me put it clear. It's not God. He's not withdrawing his joy from you. It's us as the vessels of God. But one thing we can do, as soon as you realize that the joy is not there, to really stop there and ask the person... Who is the author of that joy? To pour out his joy on you again. I mean, all of us can't be Shirley's in here, really. To rejoice and be joyful in all circumstances, regardless of what's going on in there. But we also want to experience the joy that God has for us. And no better way of experiencing that than as a family, collectively, as a community of people, especially knowing that there's so much work to do as well, that there's stretching of tents. That's when I'm going to call in sick. Um, yeah, you all have to bear with me. Yeah, when you're stretching your tents and putting the poles up. When you're digging, I'm okay with digging because it doesn't give me memories of the north or there was no digging involved. But we want the joy of God to come and rest on us. Are we up for that? Do you rejoice in God's salvation for you today? As you work out your salvation, as we leave this room, Remember, it's God's heart for out there to look like in here. And I'm pinching Roger's phrase again. So as we go out, as you're shining, as you're working out your salvation, what would Jesus do in these circumstances? How would God want me to react to this situation? What do I need to do in order to lift up the name of God in here? What do I need to do so that people ask me, how do you do it? Many of you have been asked, how do you do it? How do I raise my children in a way where my neighbors would come and say, can you tell us the tricks? How do you do it? How do I live a life where people come and ask me, how do you do it? Because that's what we want. We want the world out there to recognize that God's way is the way and there is no other way. Shall we stand together? What I'm going to ask is, because usually what happens is, is the ministry team who go around the signs and pray for others. They're not missing out because we still have opportunity for, people, for the ministry team to pray for one another. But what I'm going to ask is that firstly, if we could pray for the elders in here. That's been on my heart for the eldership team. Because as I look at these guys, as I just follow along and they, they look at them and look into their lives, 
as we spend time together, as I see the sacrifices they make, I learn and I'm convicted in my own personal life thinking, this is how I want my child to be. This is how I want to be. Their obedience, the, the way that they're really after God's heart, the way that they make sacrifices, it's really amazing to me. Uh, so I want us all, this is a very Middle Eastern way of doing it, so I know that these guys may feel a bit, oh, I don't want to be put on the spot, but it's, it's fine because it's God's way, I think. So if a few of you uh, would like to come around and pray for the elders and the family, please, that would be wonderful. So if elders and wives could come around, come forward, please. Don't worry, our God is not ashamed of this. <laughs> And then I'm going to ask the ministry team to come forward as well to be prayed for because quite often they go around and they pray for people and then there's quite often there's not much time. But yeah, if you'd like to come forward and pray for these wonderful people who are serving us faithfully from putting out chairs to <laughs> leading in other ways.